0: No, I thought uh, this was the start of a complete transformative era and that HER2 was going to be only the first of many. Um, What I didn't realize then, which is, of course, I know now that it would turn out, you know, 20 years later, that the first companion diagnostic um, is probably the best companion diagnostic
1: Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Molecular pathology and companion diagnostics are two of the most exciting areas of pathology right now, and they both have interesting implications for the future of cancer care. My guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Ross. Dr. Ross is a pathologist and the medical director of Foundation Medicine. And today, we'll talk about how he got started in medicine and pathology, her two testing, and the role that Dr. Ross played in all of that, and we'll talk about how Foundation Medicine started and some of the work that that company does. All right, here's Dr. Jeffrey Ross. You know, as as we look back on your career so far, a question I always like to ask is, how did it start? How did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor?
0: Oh, that's more a family decision than mine alone, it seemed like. Uh, It was always going to be that way. We had several doctors in the family that were uh, a generation ahead of me. My dad had chosen dentistry over medicine. And I think that uh, down the road, he wished he had uh, gone to medical school instead of dental school. And he told me that often. So I got it in my head, I think, to some extent that I would um, overcome his decision and uh, I would become the doctor in the family. So I, I don't remember ever not planning to do that. I mean, was this in high school? Or was it was at
1: college. Like, at about what age were you when you kind of decided? High school. High school. Okay, going into medical school. Then, did you have a specialty in mind, or were there several that you were considering?
0: Yes, I did a lot of a lot of research in medical school in endocrinology, and you know, admired my mentor in the lab who was an endocrinologist at the medical school, and thought that that's what I would do. And I applied for residency positions in internal medicine during the uh, early fall of my fourth year um, and even went on multiple interviews to various medical residency sites. But that's not what happened. Uh, as curiously, in, in my medical school, there, there was a a dropout of a of a, what was then called an intern, a PGY one. This is all all the way back into into uh, the fall of 1969, and the dean of the medical school selected me from from all of my classmates to essentially ascend from fourth year medical student to acting intern. Uh, and it was a long time ago. I was given ordering uh, uh, privileges of tests and even even pharmacy privileges, even though I didn't have my medical degree yet. So I functioned as a as an intern and had to take call like an intern. And um, while I was doing that, I came to the realization, at least at that time in my life, that I was more interested in the diseases uh, that the patients had um, than necessarily the 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 various other issues associated with their hospitalization, and I, I, I was reading much more about the biology and the, what was known about the disease than trying to understand the current uh, issues that each patient was having while they were while they were hospitalized. Uh, I can give you a really dramatic uh, final decision here. It was okay. on a Sunday in. I believe, uh, mid-November of 1969. And um, I had not been able to see an NFL football game that entire fall because of the almost every other night call I had to do as a acting intern. And uh, the New York Giants, my team, were playing the Cleveland Browns big game in 1969. That was when both teams were uh, great. And I was so excited that I was on all the night before and I'd get home uh, to watch the game on Sunday. Um, The house staff changed. Uh, A new resident came in, didn't know my patients. One of my patients became very nervous uh, meeting the new resident and he was convinced that she was having a pulmonary embolus. I was telling him she was just having an anxiety attack. I'd known her for a long time, being her doctor while she was in the hospital. And despite that, he made me stay the whole day ordering tests to rule out pulmonary embolus. And I missed the game. And when I got home, I called the chair of pathology at my medical school and said, how do you become a pathologist? So there's my dramatic moment of career choice. That, okay.
1: I, I have not heard a story like that before. <laughs> wow. Yeah. All, right. All right. So uh, getting into pathology then, did you enjoy it right away? Did you, or did, oh, did you yes. ever have like,
0: yeah. you did? I, okay. I, had, I, I saw my, my medical school department chair, Dr. Robert McCluskey, who had uh, just arrived at, the, at, at Buffalo State University of New York at Buffalo um, in the previous year. And Although he gave me advice, uh, hopefully I would stay in Buffalo. I just went back on the interview trail and um, ended up matching to Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, which was my first choice. Uh, what's so curious about that? Just to jump ahead, was then uh, uh, four years later, as I was being inducted into the United States Army uh, as a army physician to uh, to do pathology in the army. Uh, the chair of my department, the the wonderful and 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 world renowned Benjamin Castleman uh, was forced to retire um, in those days, sixty five years old. Uh, he could not be uh, any longer at at Mass General and had to go uh, and find a private office somewhere uh, outside the hospital. Strange as that seems, but that was the way it was back then in seventy four. So then. Uh, I returned to MGH while I was on active duty to continue work on research projects I had started when I was a resident. During that time, Dr. McCluskey, my former medical school uh, department chair, was now the chair of pathology at Massachusetts General Hospital. So I saw him there. I was actually, you know, in uniform on active duty and I went in to say hello, and he said hi and everything, because he knew who I was. And I said this, what I love, uh, so Dr. McCluskey, since you followed me from Buffalo to Mass General, does this mean you're going to follow me, me next into the U.S. Army? And he got quite a quite a laugh uh, out of that uh, suggestion, I can tell you.
1: I bet. It seems, you know, pathology is definitely a small world. I mean, it, it's true now, and it, it seems like it definitely was true then as well.
0: It it was. It certainly was. Yeah. And and so I I think um, from the moment I started in in July of 1970 at Mass General, I met six other MGH residents in the first year, all of whom became very close friends or some a little more than others, and several of whom I'm extremely close to and keep in touch with on a routine, regular basis. And I think it was the peer uh, encouragement that just led me to get involved deeply. And I I decided early that I wanted to try to do research while I was learning pathology. I never really had never seen an autopsy when I had my first day in pathology. Uh, And to be truthful, I didn't even know how to set up my microscope which I know a lot of people may be listening to this will laugh, but I have to say actually was a separate light source and a mirror to uh, uh, at least for the first uh, six months. And then I finally got a, a scope that had its own uh, light source built in. So this is a long time ago. Uh, most people mm-hmm. never knew that microscopes didn't come with uh, 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 lights already installed in them. But mm-hmm. yes, I took to it right away um, and I loved it right from the start. Before we go kind of forward in time, Talking about medical
1: school, I know especially these days medical students don't get a lot of exposure to pathology. Uh, It's kind of been reduced over the years. What was that like for you? Like in your experience?
0: Yes, I could certainly agree with that. And you know, having really been teaching medical student students pathology mostly in second year, even uh, way back when we even had first year. I mean, since 1977 and having been responsible for the second year course in my department for 28 years at Albany from 89 to 2017, and now responsible for a lot of the teaching of the medical students at the Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, just the basic uh, you know, introductory portions of pathology is where I still teach. Um, I've seen tremendous uh, reduction in amount of contact hours with students and to some extent, especially de-emphasis of morphologic pathology in the pathology course, a lot of teaching of pathophysiology and, uh, and, and mechanisms of disease. But um, for core pathology, you know, gross and microscopic pathology, the amount of that taught to medical students, mostly in second year, I've seen over my time uh, decline uh, precipitously. You know, there's, there's talk of, you know, there's a shortage
1: of pathologists in the, in the US and around the world. Do you think that reduction of exposure to pathology during medical
0: school is part of the cause? Oh, I think absolutely that it is a big part which I tried to overcome. And I was always proud that it, uh, in my years as the chair of pathology in Albany, that we recruited more medical students per, per class uh, a size than, than average was that the students don't get exposed to the dynamic aspects of pathology and see uh, and assume um, I mean but the before i made that call as a uh, senior medical student to find out what pathology really was all i thought was pathology was the teaching of pathology to the second year medical students i knew nothing about what the practice of pathology was like i wasn't exposed to that at all in medical school so i always I thought I would change that and I wanted the, the students to see dynamic pathologists at work, particularly thing, uh, things like frozen sections, uh, which I was doing and always did uh, uh, through my career. Um, I would bring medical students into the ORs to see the pathologist uh, function and they would see pathologists interact with surgeons and making intraoperative decisions. To try to uh, get them more attracted to see that it wasn't such a passive uh, a specialty. That there were times where it was really responsible for everything that was going to happen to that patient. Uh, from that moment, the pathologist was consulted for the rest of that hospitalization, and indeed for their well-being going forward. Yeah, that's that's good. That's a really great message. I think. All right.
1: Now, now going back to MGH uh, during during residency for you. Yes. There's a story that I, I read about that you had an experience with one of the first specimens that was being used for estrogen receptor assay trial.
0: Yes. can you tell me? Can you tell me this story? Yes, I mean, I, I, while doing it, I had no idea what was going on. But during my residency time, was the first introduction of the concept of trying to personalize breast cancer care. At that time, in the early '70s. Uh, it was known that estrogen, the actual the actual hormone or estradiol, uh, was a stimulant to breast cancer cells in many patients, but not likely in all. That said, when women develop usually painful bony metastases or even metastases to visceral organs, that a surgeon could intervene by reducing the estrogen stimulation. Uh, via uh, a variety of operations, uh, the first of which was bilateral removal of the ovaries, oophorectomies, um, to reduce estrogen production, which would help some but not all patients uh, and, and unfortunately, some patients seriously declined from the operation, the stress of it, maybe blood transfusions that had to be given. Um, and not only was a uh, done, but adrenalectomy was done and even uh, pituitary uh, ablation, you know, hypophysectomy was done all to try to reduce the hormonal stimulation of the tumor. And, you know, about a third of the patients, maybe a fourth, uh, just got no benefit from that. And it was realized that not all breast cancers a uh, would depend upon uh, estrogen or estradiol stimulation, so scientists worked on developing what was then known as the competitive uh binding assay, the uh, dextran charcoal binding assay, which involved uh, radio labeled estradiol being mixed with a homogenate of the patient's uh, solid. A fresh tumor. And if the uh, binding uh, a receptor, which we now call, you know, ER1 or the estrogen receptor was present, which it isn't in all cases, it would uh, bind to the radio-labeled estradiol. And when you uh, centrifuged it, the radioactivity would be in the pellet and the supernatant would not. And if it lacked the estrogen receptor, the pellet would not have bound any of the radioactive estradiol and the supernatant would be positive. A a analysis called a scattered plot was developed. Uh, All I was doing then as a resident was literally physically carrying the breast cancer sample to the research laboratory. This was only a research test at the time, but I became curious about it. And that was my first uh, uh, um, exposure to the concept of precision medicine for cancer. Cancer or personalized uh, uh, cancer treatment, where an available treatment, which was surgical at the time, would not be uh, available for every patient with the diagnosis of breast cancer, only those that had been selected because they had uh, a positive estrogen uh, estradiol binding assay in uh, 1983, I believe. So some uh, 11 years later, um, the uh, uh, what now is AstraZeneca, but then was Zeneca, the First anti-estrogen drug came out, the tamoxifen, and that ended the uh, surgical treatment uh, of uh, breast cancer for reduction of uh, of hormonal stimulation. That ended on the spot. And then women went on drugs. They didn't have to go to the OR to have their uh, hormonal uh, therapy administered. But that was my first exposure. Do you ever think about if you hadn't had this
1: experience, that, that exposure at that time, like how different your career would have been?
0: Um. No, I think I would have found my way to to what I do today anyway. But that just got me a okay. head start. Uh, got me thinking like that right from the get go, and it certainly had uh, had an impact on my being kind of the, in the right state of mind at the right time when I first learned about the the new gene from Robert Weinberg on a transatlantic flight in 1981. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so you're you're talking about the her two new gene, yeah. a big part of my career. All right. So tell me about that. Well, I certainly, I had not heard of it. And so neither had anyone else because it hadn't been discovered. But um, in 1981, from the work I had continued to do at Massachusetts General, and it was a combination of having a small laboratory connected to a large team of researchers, which I worked out through my four years as a resident there. They continued me and I continued my appointment, although I was uh, required to do sign out in the pathology department at MGH as one of the uh, external quote volunteers. So it was an unpaid position, but I I would go once a quarter and spend a week on site there, signing out surgicals with the MGH residents and then working in in the lab. And uh, because of that, I got invited from the work I was doing, which was in colorectal cancer, uh, experimental animal model kind of thing, to speak at a, uh, very briefly, at a meeting taking place in, in, in Germany, in the Black Forest. And when I got on the plane to fly from Boston to Zurich, um, a gentleman sat down next to me and I by the time I had finished uh, uh, taxiing to the runway, I realized he was the keynote or the plenary speaker at the same meeting I was going to get a ten minute. He was going to get an hour long. And it was Robert Weinberg, of course, the celebrated uh, uh, cancer biologist uh, from the Whitehead Institute at the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology and I got into a conversation with him about the Nobel Prize for oncogene and his not being recognized, even though he described the first human oncogene. And then he said, well, I've got a new discovery that I'm excited about. And he said, in fact, uh, that's a pun. It's really, I'm calling it new, but not any W. am calling it U. It's for neuroblastoma. And I have cloned this gene from a rat neuroblastoma cell line that I believe is a, you know, transformative or uh, yeah, a gene associated with this tumor type. So when I got back, I said, I'm going to hitch my career to that and learn everything I can about the new gene, you know, when it gets published and that's what happened. And I, um, a long story short, I kept doing what was available for pathologists, uh, you know, in the, in the mid uh, and late 1980s, which was uh, immunohistochemistry. Uh, which um i was quite interested in and i published a few papers which got notice uh, of uh, a company called encore actually when i took over or, or uh, um, a was awarded the chair of pathology at Albany Medical College in 1989. One of the uh, laboratory technologists uh, there uh, ended up leaving and going to work uh, for this company, Encore. And he came back right away to see me and asked if my work and HER2 knew, which was what we called it then, um, would um, interest me in uh, looking at a new way to try to detect it called fluorescence in situ hybridization or FISH. The company was involved in trying to transform the FISH assay from being done on whole cells for cytogenetics um, into uh, paraffin uh, embedded uh, tumor tissues and you know five micron sections. So I worked with Encore. Ultimately, was asked to serve as its uh, chief medical officer, uh, which I did. And we patented the first uh, HER2-FISH assay, um, which was a single probe, not the current uh, standard of care, the double probe habit uh, visus assay. This was the original Encore single probe assay which ultimately uh, uh, ended up uh, being marketed by Ventana Medical Systems, uh, which is another interesting story. <laughs> but um, so I became quite know- known for, for developing the HER2 fish test and giving interviews, you know, in the media about it. Cause when the FDA um, granted the pre-market approval of HER2 fish, which was, um, you know, a a year before the uh, approval of uh, Herceptin or Trasuzumab. It was the first uh, genetic or first genomic test ever approved by the FDA. So it got a lot of notice uh, at the time. But lots happened after that. But I stayed in the HER2 world for many, many years. I'm not really out of it, but it's not the prime focus of my career now for the last, uh, oh, I don't know, 15 years or so. But it was for a long time. So w- one more thing about her too.
1: Like you mentioned the the fish test and, and the IHC test. Now it seemed like for you that in the some of the papers you were writing and the talks you were doing that you felt that the, the
0: fish test was better uh, than than IHC. This was of course a major controversy, and, and this was of course has to be dated at the time and how mm-hmm. IHC was being done. So I went to to uh, Genentech in the dubious address of 1DNA Way, South San Francisco. And if anyone's ever been to Genentech, you know it's at the northern edge of the San Francisco International Airport. So it's very easy to get there once you land in San Francisco. So I went out on an early morning flight and was able to uh, make a presentation to the entire leadership of Genentech because this was a big decision on their part. If you remember in At that time, and this is uh, 1996, I believe, maybe 95, 95, they had uh, started the clinical trials of transusumab at that point only one uh, uh de-immunized or humanized antibody therapeutic had ever been approved and that was ritoxan or rituximab for lymphoma and uh, you know uh, chronic lymph- lymphocytic leukemia and rituximab was the first ever uh, antibody therapeutic you could give to a human being more than once because of the deimmunization, you didn't get the you know human anti mouse antibodies, the HAMA, that would neutralize it if you tried to give a second dose. Now uh, the mouse part of it was only the uh, antigen binding site but the rest of the uh, drug was all humanized IgG, and there was no uh, HAMA that developed. And now they were gonna try to do the same thing to a solid tumor that had a uh, abundant overexpression of the HER2 protein uh, based on an increased copy number of the HER2 gene, or what we call HER2 amplification. And the issues were that uh, there had never been at that point a quantitative immunohistochemistry assay designed to guide the use of a drug and questions about the technology itself. Since standardization then in the mid 90s for IHC was very meager and every lab had their own way. They did everything from fixation to antigen retrieval to antibody, you know, some was manual, some was automated. It was really a, a very unregulated area at the time, very different from now. So with that in mind, I went to Genentech to suggest that IHC could be a problem. I know that's what they were planning to do. uh, And that fish was more quantitative and a lot more objective at the time. Um, Unfortunately, I was unable to uh, convince them. The the meeting was uh, celebrated in my way because I tried every way I could think of to have them do fish. I mean, Encore certainly wanted it to be fish. And indeed, when they that day, they decided it wasn't going to be fish. It probably was the death knell for Encore, which uh, was to go Chapter 11, some two, three years later, when it wasn't uh, selected as the test for for Tresusuman. So onward went the trial, but before I, I, not before, I walked out of the room and then walked back in the room and there were the, you know, the founders of Genentech, you know, Herb Boyer was there and the CEO and all of the leaders of the cancer division and the uh, trans project. And I said, someday you'll uh, retest or test your samples by fish and find out it's a better predictor of whether your, your drug will work or not. And what of course happened was at the time that the uh, approval occurred and remember this dreary december day in 1998 was a uh, absolute um, you know historic moment for the treatment of cancer because for the first time ever, on one side of the street in Gaithersburg, at the ODAG, the new drug, a uh, 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 panel approved, uh, Genentech's trastuzumab for women with HER2 overexpressing breast cancers, but only those women who had a positive test by the companion diagnostic that was in trastuzumab's label, called the Hercept test from the Daco Corporation, and across the street. Uh, at the, what was then called the Office of In vitro Diagnostics and Implanted Devices. It's different now, but this is 1998. The uh, different FDA panel approved the uh, DACO HERCEP test only for use in breast cancer patients as a guide to whether they would or would not be eligible to be treated with the anti HER2 antibody trastuzumab. Now, curiously, at that time, women who were two plus, or three plus were considered eligible. There was no further evaluation of the two plus patients then. And the data at the ODAG at the drug approval site was not very, very impressive. The uh, survival benefit uh, was limited. It was only uh, uh, about four months. And the p value of the difference between the treated and the untreated was just barely significant at 0. 0.048. In fact, I think the FDA was thinking about wanting them to do more testing, if not for the uh, National Breast Cancer Coalition, who spoke out in uh, favor of approving this drug now on the basis that the FDA had not approved any new drug for breast cancer for more than 10 years. And obviously, many, many women in the United States were dying from the disease. So what the FDA did, did was say, "Okay, we're going to approve this Today, the first uh, so-called CDX, companion diagnostic, the drug on one side, the test on the other, each with its uh, indication in the label of the other. But in post-market approval, we obligate Genentech to retest all of the patients in their trial by with the test that they had approved uh, uh, previously, the FISH test. They're curious whether FISH would be a better predictor of response or not. Um, I obviously uh, smiled uh, uh, from one ear to the other when that came out and Genentech looked at me and said, well, you're going to get your wish here because we got to do it, what you wanted us to do. And of course, uh, I sometimes like to say that it's my belief, of course, never been proven that it was this day that ultimately ended up being the reason why the national ASCO meeting uh, never meets in San Francisco anymore because some uh, two years later, Um, The data was ready to be presented for the first time at ASCO, how the uh, fish test predicted versus IHC. And the room that the uh, San Francisco uh, uh, set up for this was for uh, a thousand people and three thousand. Remember, ASCO is a lot bigger meeting than pathology meeting. So three thousand people tried to get in and two thousand people were lined up and they couldn't get in here. But um, what I loved was that the presentation started with Genentech saying something like, you know, the guy sitting up here in the front row, which was me, he came to us and everybody gets to be right one time in their life. And that was this pathologist's time. We've done the data and indeed fish is a much better predictor. Now, the reason for that then was because the two-plus patients were considered positive and treated. But when FISH was applied, all of the three-plus patients were still positive, but uh, only about one-third or one-fourth of the two-plus patients were still positive when the FISH test was done. So every two-plus patient that didn't test positive for FISH was considered negative. And so their data of response was eliminated from the patient outcome. They would have been rejected from the trial if it had been a FISH-based trial. And the p-value dropped from 048 to 0015. And the survival benefit went down to, I think, about 18 months. Now, this is in the metastatic setting with two different combinations with chemotherapy. There was the you know Herceptin plus, uh, plus uh, Adriamycin, cytoxin or the uh, Herceptin plus paclitaxel plus taxane. So two different chemo regimens, but they were about the same. So there it was. Uh, now, of course, my uh, over the years, the ASCO CAP guidelines were developed, and uh, the whole approach, especially to companion diagnostics based on IHC, occurred with uh, issues about uh, all of the uh, factors that could influence the results, like the pre-analytic factors, about you know cold and warm ischemia, the nature of the fixative how long it's fixed for. And this all improved immunohistochemistry dramatically. Um, When it first started, there were some terrible stories about how, uh, I mean, Genentech launched the drug with the Hercept test. And within six months, there was a letter in the uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, that said, we're getting over 50% positives for the Daco-Hercept test. That's ridiculous. This test wasn't ready to be released. The FDA has to go look into it and find out what's wrong. And that came from a very prestigious, uh, I think I'm not going to name it, but it's a a national uh, reference laboratory. And uh, DACO submitted, you know, sent a team out there. And of course, they bought it. This antibody has a package insert. At that time in 1990, early 99, pathologists weren't reading package inserts. Everybody thought, well, we've got our own recipe for IHC. We do it the way we do it, and our slides are the most beautiful you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Rather than this is a laboratory, not a kitchen and a restaurant here, and we have to follow the exact guy, you know, package insert with how the test is supposed to be done. And the first sentence in the package insert for the DACO Ursef test said, "This is a." very sensitive, polyclonal, not monoclonal, polyclonal antibody for this IHC, and it cannot be used after microwave antigen retrieval. The antigen retrieval must be by water bath, you know, holding the temperature to 100 degrees C and never going above that. Well, of course, the lab, uh, had done their own, uh, um, you know, microwave energy retrieval. Um, And that's why they had boosted up the positive rate so much. And then when they switched to water bath, they were getting, you know, 20 percent like they were supposed to. And there was another one like that. But that day when that letter came out in the JCO, I mean, Genentech's market capitalization dropped by one billion dollars as the whole Wall Street concluded that their great discovery of the Herceptin and the test that guided it, the whole new way of precision oncology was a bust. And just by that, but fortunately, over time, the IHC improved dramatically. And uh, when when you use the on-label DACO Hercept test, you followed the guidelines and you got the right patients that were three plus were positive. And then when uh, the fish data came out, you know several years later, uh, the so-called uh, you know two plus triage system developed. You could do fish as your primary, and that was fine. But if you did IHC as your primary test, The three pluses could be treated, the zeros and ones were considered negative, but the two pluses had another test done, which was fish. And if they turned out to be amplified, then they were also positive and eligible. But if they turned out not to be amplified, they were considered the same as the zeros and ones. And so I played a big part in all of that, I can tell you. Mm it was a big part of my life, and I stayed really interested in it, um, especially when I got into DNA sequencing and next-generation sequencing and started to become particularly interested not in the HER2 copy number game, but in activating mutations in the uh, gene sequence itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: I mean, this seems like
1: a real kind of pivotal moment in the history of It's kind of the start of a revolution. I mean, you mentioned the words companion diagnostics, which... I imagine it probably
0: wasn't called that at the time in 1998. I, you know, some people were using that term. They were. Oh, they there were. were some, yeah, they were. There were some. There was some. You know, talk. Of course, we had. You know, tests that we did um, that helped. You know, like ER. Uh, we had to do, uh, you know, now IHC, as you, as you know, that com- that that competitive binding assay I described required a pretty large, uh, uh, about a half a sugar cube sized piece of tissue to get sufficient cytosolic protein to do the actual test, and then. After that, into the 1980s and 1990s became a lot of public health effort to have women learn how to examine themselves, how to do self-examination, as well as screening mammography. And if you look at the size of the primary tumor of a diagnosed breast cancer patient in the U.S., it was like almost three sonometers in the 1970s, and then two sonometers, and then uh, 1.7 and 1.5, and by the time we got into you know around 93 94 the average size was so small that you could not afford to give away a big piece of the tumor for the competitive charcoal binding assay for er the pathologist saying i needed to make the diagnosis and decide whether what's the grade and you know is there a lymphovascular invasion and all the things we do and so at that point Uh, The Abbott had come out with their first uh, anti ER IHC assay, and virtually overnight, all uh, ER testing uh, converted from the uh, competitive binding assay to the on slide ER assay, necessitated because of the shrinking of the size of the tumors. I mean, we could have a long conversation on whether I think IHC for ER is better than the, it's currently not better. The other test was quantitative far more accurate, not subjective, but doesn't matter. We can't do it because the test required too much tissue. So that happened also in the 90s as uh, HER2 testing was being launched uh, in a big way. And so there you had your onslide test, the IHC for ER, and then we did PR of course, and then the IHC for HER2, which most labs did. Uh, Today, I couldn't tell you what's the frequency of fish as a primary, uh, IHC as the primary, or some labs that do both on every patient, but it's changed a lot over the years and the IHC has has improved dramatically. And it's almost, uh, I really, I can't remember the last time I saw a three plus IHC that came in uh, to foundation medicine that wasn't amplified on the next generation sequencing test. Uh, um, so the quality of IHC now is, is far, far better than it was when uh, the first uh, CDX or companion diagnostic launched uh, on that winter day in 1998. Sure, sure. That that makes
1: sense. Did you have an idea at the time of, you know, this is a brand new field called companion diagnostics, and this could really grow into something huge. I mean, did you have that kind of foresight about it, or was it just kind of okay? This is
0: the one, this is
1: this one test that is brand new, and and this is really exciting just by itself.
0: No, I thought uh, this was the start of a complete transformative era, and that Her2 was going to be only. The first of many um, what I didn't realize then, which is, of course I know now, that it would turn out you know 20 years later, that the first companion diagnostic um, is probably the best companion diagnostic, meaning if HER2 amplification was not discovered by Weinberg in 1981, but instead. Wasn't discovered as a target until 2002 or 2003, it never would have been developed as a breast cancer uh, target. It would have been developed as what we call a pan genomic target. And the fact that it was developed and discovered first as a target in breast cancer, to some extent, has probably cost many, many, many decades. Maybe centuries of survival of patients with other cancer types who've never been able to be treated because they've never been on label. So if we go uh, to other tumor types, of course, we did finally get an extension of uh, of anti-HER2 therapy into upper gastroesophageal cancer. You know, some, how many years is it? 11, 12 years, 13 years after the first approval before and 98 for it in breast cancer, um, but today those are the only two diseases that are, quote, on label for anti-HER2-targeted therapy, breast cancer, and uh, which has to be HER2-positive, or upper gastroesophageal adenocarcinoma, which has to be HER2-positive. But HER2 amplification is present in such a wide range of other cancers, and some at higher higher frequencies than in the two approved indications some diseases like gallbladder cancer for example salivary duct carcinoma i could give you a long list have you know her2 frequencies that are um, you know almost twice as high as upper uh, gi or, or 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 breast but although a lot of those patients do get treated with anti her2 drugs um, there's no I, I, how the payment is done is can be problematic because they're not approved by the FDA. But if we discovered the target today, it would be like some of these others, like NTRAC fusion, uh, for example. You know, that's a pan genomic where you can give the drug to any tumor type that has an n fusion or microsatellite instability high which we can find in, in a 400 different types of tumor types, I mean, higher in some than others. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's a, uh, uh, um, you know, a head and neck squamous cell carcinoma, or it's, a, uh, you know a, a urethral adenocarcinoma from, from one end of the body to the other. If it's got MSI high status, pembrolizumab, the you know immune checkpoint inhibitor is on label. That's a pan-cancer approval. Well, we would have had a pan-cancer approval, but we just discovered her too too soon, and thought it was, you know, a breast cancer gene, and didn't realize how widespread uh, uh, it was as an oncogene. And it's probably, you know, the most targetable oncogene in the human body if we think of all the indications. You know, for a long time, I would give these talks, and I'm talking about even medical oncologists in the audience who thought that the H-E-R name for the gene then was due to the fact that it's a breast cancer gene, and the H-E-R stood for her, like a woman, that belonged to her. And I had to tell them, no, H-E-R stands for Human Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, H-E-R, of which EGFR, Epidermal Growth Factor Receptor, can also be called HER1. They didn't know that. They thought it belonged to women and, of course, many men. Many men have HER2-driven disease. Um, it's not her gene. It's not his gene. It's, uh, and, and it's unfortunate. And yet uh, the expense uh, of, of the regulatory approvals to go for a pan cancer. Um, the one drug, though, the new one, which is called trastuzumab derox Tcan, this is a conjugate of a trastuzumab. now the generic, trastuzumab, since it's now no longer on patent, complexed or or conjugated with an anti-cancer drug widely used called arenotecan. And uh, trastuzumab-durexatecan is the most powerful anti-HER2 drug ever developed. Uh, It has a problem with uh, pulmonary uh, interstitial pneumonitis and even fibrosis in some patients that has to be very carefully monitored. But It's going to finally really uh, bust open the indications for targeting HER2. The first big one that it's going to get, and we've been waiting for this for 20 years, is lung cancer. Now, lung cancer does not have a lot of HER2 amplification, but it has a fairly high frequency of a certain type of insertion mutation in the kinase domain of HER2. And uh, I believe that trisuzumab duroxecan, which was uh, developed by the company Daiichi Sankyo, will, uh, and now I think it's co-marketed by AstraZeneca, but I'm not sure about that, we will get an approval in lung cancer. But it's curiously going to be for the sequence mutation that activates the gene, not because of an increased number of copies like in breast or upper GI. So we will finally get out of just restricted to two tumor types before too long. I'm, I'm completely uh, convinced of that.
1: This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Ross. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Jeffrey Ross on the People of Pathology podcast. It's interesting that, you know, from 1981 till now, there's still new, there, there's still new things being discovered about HER2 all, yes. all these years
0: later. But it's mostly the therapeutics. We
1: mm-hmm.
0: know we, we really study the gene, study the target. I mean, the the, the, the really fabulously interesting stories about how it works, I mean, you know, we knew from basic biology studies that cell lines that had HER2 copy number increase were really motile. You look at them, you know, in a, in, in a dish under an electrical current and a breast cancer cell line that's HER2 amplified under the current uh, will move like three times farther, in a, you know, in a period of time than the HER2 wild types would so we always said it was a motility factor and then one day uh, myself part of this we said well how can we prove that happens in patients and the easy answer was paget's disease of the of the breast nipple this is an unfortunate rare complication with a red excoriated nipple in a woman who has an underlying breast cancer deeper down in their breast well if you as i've said if you see a patient, and it's a pretty easy diagnosis to make, you know, on physical exam, you don't have to do any biopsies or anything. Of patches disease is only really pretty, much only one thing that looks like that. If you look at it, you can, you know, start giving them, uh, you know, the anti HER2 drugs. Plus, 100 percent, 100 percent of patches disease of the nipple is HER2 amplified or HER2 three plus IHC.
1: You mentioned Foundation Medicine already. Which yes. you're one of the co-founders, I believe, that yes. was in 2000.
0: I consider and this foundation medicine, for me, is the pinnacle achievement of my career. Okay, okay. And that yeah, I was, I was going to say, like, all of these
1: things you've been doing up to this point kind of led to uh, the creation of foundation medicine. It would, did, would you,
0: it did. Uh, it did uh, because we, what happened was in 1999, the, the founders of, uh, of another company called Millennium Pharmaceuticals, which was located in Cambridge, Mass., became quite interested because this was found in 1999, just after all of the information came out about HER2 fish and the approval of uh, of Trasuzumab. And they had started uh, um, using the human genome to try to create new drug targets as it was being sequenced. And one of the founders of Millennium is Eric Lander, you know, who at the time was the head of the Broad Institute at MIT. And they invited consultants to do a um, evaluation of um, their plans for validating these drug targets coming out of the human genome. And I was invited and I thought it'd be interesting to go see, see, see the company. And I went there to Cambridge from Albany, where I was still the pathology chairs in my finishing my 10th year. And I um, decided to go ahead and throw my hand in the ring. So I, I wrote him a 30 page. This is how you need to do it in terms of uh, creating an almost diagnostic lab with uh, at least two shifts, if not three shifts working around the clock to do. And then you had to do RT-PCR using the TACMAN technology and in hybridization using radio labeled uh, probes on nylon membranes, which you needed, uh, I mean, on, on glass slides, you needed spectacular sensitivity, and uh, they, they loved it, but uh, I got a phone call from the CEO, who said, we want to do your, your plan, I said, great, I mean, you know, it's always nice to send in a report that gets accepted, and they said, and uh, when can you start, you know, to lead the, the, the program, He said, what are you kidding, start, I got my job here, and I said, no, we want you to do it. So I went to the dean and the dean said, OK, you can have a sabbatical leave. And I went to Millennium Pharmaceuticals for a year to put this in, uh, program in place. And uh, then I met with Eric Lander on a on a monthly basis to talk about um, all the different things that he wanted to learn about involving pathology, formal and fixed paraffin-embedded tissues, rough frozen sections, all of that kind of thing. And that went on after my year ended in 2001. I did a, uh, I became a consultant to, to Millennium for the next uh, uh, four years and would come there quite, quite often as things moved along. Well, four years, three 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 and a half years later, uh, I'm working for the founders of Millennium who have now left. They've sold it to a Japanese company and they are running a new venture capital called Third Rock Ventures on Newberry Street in Boston. And they wanted me to become a consultant to the TRV since I'd been you know been working with them at Millennium all these years. And I said, absolutely, they would bring me in whenever there there were discussions about diagnostic companies or where diagnostics were needed for the drug companies. And it was very enjoyable. And then one day I they said, This is a special meeting, make sure you're here on time. I had to drive, you know, two hours to get there. And in walked uh, Eric Lander. And I said, Eric, it's great to see you and all that kind of stuff. And he said, You know, you're here not because of chance here. I said, I don't understand. He said, we have asked Third Rock Ventures for $25 million to start a for-profit company to use the new next-generation sequencing technologies on formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded clinical-grade samples to try to start personalizing cancer care based on the detection of uh, targetable genomic alterations. Um, which was the Broad Institute's platform that in- involved the technology known as the Illumina hybrid capture method with their HiSeq sequencer. I said, Great. I said, What a great idea. I mean, this is so needed. It's curiously, that some of this was based on the Broad Institute's attempt to try to sequence Steve Jobs' uh, uh, pancreatic neuroendocrine cancer and the role that Bill Gates played with Eric Lander to try to get that done, which they didn't get done before Steve Jobs unfortunately died of his disease. And so Bill Gates was also funding the, this new venture um, from Third Rock, and Bill Gates is, you know, a, a Series A investor in Foundation Medicine way back in 2009. But they said that none of us, none of the founders, you know, know anything about uh, really running a, a pathology department or a clinical laboratory or a, uh, a diagnostics laboratory that's got to bill and collect for its tests and all of that. So we we need you to be its medical director and and lead it. And I said, of course, I'll do that. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. And besides, there's so much I can learn, so much we can publish about doing this on patients' tumors. And um, I've got so many samples I want to sequence. And um, I felt like that was a dream. Like I've told people ever since then, you go through a career like a surfer, maybe on a wave. And you have good days and good days, and then one time you get up on top of a wave and you say, oh my God, this is the biggest wave. If I play my, if I do everything right, I could stay on the top of this wave, I mean wave, I don't know how long, but if I don't know that I'm on top of that wave at the time and then I crash, I'll say, oh, I was once on a great wave. If I'd only known, I said to myself, this is the time and the date where you know this is that wave. And I said, I will drop everything. to to get this done and to be available and to get the time away. And that's what happened. We went around a listening tour for a a year uh, as more financing was being assembled, talking to mostly medical oncologists and some key opinion leader pathologists who I respected to get there. And it's amazing how many who now are considered world experts in companion diagnostics and personalized oncology who said, this will never happen. No one will ever want to do DNA sequencing. There's only a few possible uses of it and you'll never make any money and on and on and on. They discouraged us. Some of these guys, whenever I see them, they thank me for never disclosing the fact that they once said this couldn't be done, but they did and we went and did it of course anyway um, and launched the company in 2010. Uh, I did a couple of quick review articles uh, because I didn't know that much about the technology of next-generation sequencing and the different competing ways to do it and thought I'd better educate myself. And the best way to educate yourself is to write a review article. So I wrote a couple and published them in, uh, in the pathology literature to just get myself uh, going here. And I would say after the company started doing clinical samples, oh maybe after a, a month or two i stood up in the meeting and said i'm the luckiest pathologist on the face of the earth i'm the only pathologist in the company i come here and i try to get there two three times a week if i can it's tough with my schedule being a department chair but i'm going to do it and doing the path review and i see these cancers sometimes very common colon breast prostate lung and sometimes extremely uncommon Boy, I've never seen one of these before. I've read about them. Wow, this is what it really looks like when I have the glass slide in my hand. And then 10 days later, I get to learn what are the genomic drivers of this? What mutations do they have? I mean, what other pathologist in the world has got access to this growing database than I do? I'll do everything I can to maximize uh, this academically, as well as to help patients and Now I have a very unusual career as a pathologist because I physically see patients with cancer and I consult on patients with cancer all over the world almost on a daily basis. I I get their reports, they've been recommended to me by by their oncologist, they've been recommended to me by a a friend who knows me, their friends or families of uh, departments I've worked in, departments I currently work in and I constantly try to help them um, directly. Even the foundation didn't do the tests, although most often foundation did do the tests. And it's extremely, it's extremely rewarding. Uh, At USCAP, meeting, you know, just uh, last month on the Sunday afternoon, I left Los Angeles and drove up to Santa Barbara to see a kidney specialist who's the husband of a very close friend of mine who I went to grade school with. And they live in santa barbara he's still practicing um he diagnosed with lung lung cancer seven years ago and they contacted me immediately and i've guided his anti-egfr treatment you know throughout a seven-year period involving changing drugs as resistance mutations have come on and his latest ct scan is he's got no evidence of disease now seven years and he says how do I tell you that you saved my life? I said, I didn't do it. We all did it. And these are kinds of rewards that pathologists often are are unfortunate enough to hear like I do. So that's part of the reason why at 76, I'm still doing this. Right. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. You you mentioned the, you have like direct patient contact with, which is unusual unusual for a pathologist. Yes.
0: Yes. At Upstate, you know, my my chairmanship ended in in uh, two thousand and seventeen at Albany. And uh, I'm very excited because uh, in uh, the end of this month, I get to go back to Albany Med and I'm going to get uh, uh, an honorary uh, honorary doctoral degree at medical school graduation this year, which is something that uh, my son is a graduate of Albany Med. And so now I'll be I'll have a degree from the same school that he does, which makes me feel good. But at Syracuse, where I'm working now, I'm not full time, but I, I, I be, with this work at home and all the interactions I, I work for, uh, doctors at Syracuse or do teaching or meet with the residents almost every, every day via virtual, but I'm not physically there um, except uh, during one week a month. Um, there's where I see the patients when I go, um, you know, in a, in a consultation kind of way, often with another doctor present because, you know, I, my, my um, uh, malpractice coverage, you know, doesn't include, you know, And when, when I make recommendations, I'm not the one going to give them the drugs, so to speak. But I do see them, and I'm the one who's really leading the event. But there's usually another doctor in the room at the same
1: time. I want to talk about one other thing about foundation medicine now. I mean, I'm sure most people have heard of the Foundation One. That's kind of your main uh, solid tumor testing. Yeah, we call it Foundation One CDX now. Okay, okay. But there's also uh, Foundation Liquid, I believe it's called.
0: And that's Foundation One Liquid CDX,
1: yes. Okay. All right, so this is liquid biopsy testing. And yes. I, there's a lot of talk about this, a lot of research being done. I'm curious about your opinion about uh, liquid biopsy. Like, Do you think that has the potential to replace a tissue biopsy?
0: It's a, it's a very provocative question. And mm-hmm. if you ask me the question, do I believe that liquid biopsy and its role in cancer diagnosis, treatment, and monitoring has the potential to completely change paradigms for how cancer patients are diagnosed and treated? The answer is a profound yes. Um, liquid biopsy does have this potential, but there's a lot of, I would call it, uh, you know, uncertainty about where to use it, who to use it on, how to rely on it. But there does it threaten traditional pathology as we have known it, that's been anatomic and surgical path? Uh, yes, it does. Uh, it doesn't threaten, in, threaten its existence. It threatens how it, how it will be used and when it will be used. I mean, we do have thoracic oncologists who specialize in lung cancer treatment who are called to see a patient who's coughing and maybe lost weight and who has a CT scan that shows uh, an inoperable mass in their chest, which is a 99% chance it's lung cancer and they're Give a history that they're smoking. Many oncologists well, today will immediately order Foundation One liquid or its competing test, the GARDEN test, which we compete with, or the only two liquid uh, uh, tests on the market, and get the genomic alterations and plan the treatment before the pathology report's been issued. Because they've gone and drawn the genomic test before the interventional radiologist, for example, has been uh, obtained, the time to get the biopsy has been obtained, then the FNA and the cell block is made, and then the pathologist wanted, of course, the TTF1 and who knows how many other immunostains. And finally, the PATH report comes out several days after the, the uh, uh, oncologist already knows this lung cancer there. They KRAS or something like that. Oh, my God. So, boy, that's impactful. But they're not going to give one drop of treatment until that path report comes in. So for early stage cancer, I don't see anatomic pathology being impacted that much by liquid biopsies. It still has to be done. And for patients who are operable, you know, the grading and staging and all um, uh, of that has to be done. But for advanced cancer patients, that's where the frequency of doing metastasis biopsies, like liver biopsy to prove this or lung biopsy to prove that, that may decline because of oncologists realizing that a liquid biopsy showing circulating mutations is uh, convincing enough about what's going on there, the patient is going to need systemic treatment. Uh, Whether every spot on the liver is cancer, or only one of them is, it's not going to change anything, and the risk and the cost of biopsying. So late stage cancer biopsies may decline because of liquid biopsies. The issue of when to do a liquid biopsy versus when to do a tissue biopsy for sequencing, for for looking for targets, for NGS, It's not liquid first in my opinion, and it's not tissue first, it's the patient first. There are clinical settings in which you will never do a liquid biopsy because it's a huge waste of time and money. You'll never get any kind of uh, useful information. Uh, Prostate cancer with PSA below five, I don't care what the scans show, don't do a liquid biopsy. You won't get enough DNA from the cancer cells out of the liquid biopsy and just slow things down. If you desperately want sequencing, you're gonna have to biopsy metastasis. But that same patient with a PSA of 10, why biopsy the metastasis and harm the patient? You can get everything you need to know from the liquid biopsy. This all has to be taught to pathologists, uh, uh, and they have to have you know more understanding. Um, it does threaten them to some degree. I can't deny that it does. But liquid biopsies, in my opinion, threaten radiologists even more because how many years have we relied on radiologists to decide how a cancer patient is doing? You know we put the calipers on their CT scans and say the drugs are working, the drugs aren't working, the disease is progressing, the disease is shrinking, the disease is gone. And I don't think that has a lot longer to live because of the liquid monitoring, which is different from the liquid biopsy. This is now liquid monitoring. And foundation has its test coming out this year called Tracker. And this company, Signatera, has a well-known test. Here, you use the known tissue results from sequencing or maybe a liquid biopsy to pick the top two genes that are easy to detect in blood. And then you make a very inexpensive PCR test, a digital droplet PCR test that's unique for that patient. It's not the same one for every patient. Their tumor has KRAS and TP53, and those are the two we want to measure. They may not even be the targets of treatment, but they're just good measures of how they're doing. And if we can't find any, the patient's in full remission. And the first sign we can detect any means the disease is coming back. And we'll know that, I don't know, six to 10 months before the radiology changes. And I I think the new cancer drugs um, will be developed that way. So expensive, you know, to rely on radiology and you get a late call that your drug doesn't work and you spent, you know, millions of dollars unnecessarily. Uh, but the liquid uh, monitoring test will say your drug doesn't work You know, six months earlier. That's a lot of trial time. And if you got several drugs in trials and one is doing really well by the liquid and the others aren't, you'll put all your money in the one that works. So I see a big transformation there. That, that liquid monitoring is going to, to become the standard of care, I think, within the next 10 years, maybe even within the next five. Um, and that's how, how, and that's important for pathologists because that's the kind of test that you might have to send off, but also could be, you know, done in kit ways. And there's a lot of kit ways these things can happen, but this is molecular pathology. And the big difference for all of this that impacts pathology practice is there's no professional component. You don't look under the microscope. You don't do your professional interpretation based on that. And you don't get to put in a CPT code for professional component, and you don't get to bill and and collect a professional component. It's a, it sounds like you're right. There,
1: this will be kind of a big change coming. Big big in, change in, in pathology, and it's also going to be better for the
0: patients, which
1: I know is a is is a big concern of yours. Well,
0: I think uh, it's uh, you know anticipating how how where and how things will change. I mean, I had no formal training in molecular pathology. I was curious when I first heard of PCR and wanted to learn about PCR and then realized that it was going to enable uh, an enormous impact on the diagnostics world in the, you know, in the 19, uh, like early 19, 1980s. And I decided to just teach myself and take every course known to mankind about molecular pathology and literally become a molecular pathologist before there was a specialty of molecular pathology. In those days, you had HPV, you know, viral testing. That was a molecular test and a fair amount of interesting things going on in heme path. Um, and a few things in pediatric cancer. And then uh, later on came HER2 testing for the first adult solid tumor test. Um, but I felt very confident this was going to transform pathology as we know it. And, and, it, and it has people ask me about probably the, one of the top activities that pathologists today uh, work hard at, which is the classification of cancer. You know, first, on the broadest ways, you know, is it, is it a hemologic malignancy? Is it a solid tumor? If it's a solid tumor, is it a carcinoma or a sarcoma or something else? Um, And then on, on, and on, the further define it with lots of immunostains to make the most accurate diagnosis possible. And I think at the time of first diagnosis, this is critically important because primary therapy can often require that, especially when the plan is for cure. But for patients with advanced cancer, it's not as important as it once was to get the diagnosis right. Because the patient's got advanced cancer, and whether they have advanced this or advanced that, the issue is the same, how do we treat it? And there the genomic information, which may help uh, uh, classify the disease more accurately, is out to try to get the best therapy for the patient. And to some extent, a lot of the work done on using genomics to further classify is useful, but not necessarily transformative in terms of uh, treatment selection. Now, going on, the probable disease, which this is most apparent in, is cancer of unknown primary or carcinoma of unknown primary site. I mean, pathologists have done you know innumerable immunostains trying to decide whether this liver biopsy is the primary cholangiocarcinoma or metastatic carcinoma. And if it's metastatic carcinoma, is it from upper GI, lower GI, is it genitourinary, is it, could it be lung, um, could it be somewhere else? And once it's in the liver and multiple other sites, that becomes less important. There there is this idea of site-specific chemotherapy. You wanna give this regimen for an upper GI versus this one for a lower, it doesn't impact survival all that much. What impacts survival is what's the driver and is there any targeted therapy available or would immunotherapy help or even something else? So we're not getting less interested in where the tumor started when it's stage four as to how can we slow it down. And this is something that's a a way of thinking that's I think hopefully going to change clinical practice within the next couple of years. Um, I wrote a paper about it when I first got the, uh, when we first got Foundation Medicine going, I said I wanted to do CUP as soon as possible. And um, after about two, three years, we had enough cases and went over them really carefully, make sure they really qualified as CUP at the time. And wrote this paper that was published in the first issue of uh, the new cancer journal called JAMA Oncology. Uh, Roche read that and decided to uh, start a trial called CAPISCO, which is not in the U.S. It's a you know 100 million dollar trial involving over 900 patients, trying to show that doing uh, next generation sequencing at the time of diagnosis of this CUP. Could put patients on individualized, personalized, precision therapies that today they don't get because instead they get uh, a nonspecific, multi-agent chemotherapy and have about an 11% chance of living 11 months. The uh, uh, trial has been going on for almost three years now, maybe two year, two and a half years. And I know that the first, I've written three or four papers already on the trial, but um, we, and on the genomics of the trial, but not the clinical outcome, these patients can go on to about 14 different arms of therapy, you know, targeting this pathway and that pathway with or without immunotherapy. It's quite, quite elaborate. I've heard that there's been a glimpse at some of the outcome data. I've heard, you know, I, I just was told that, yes, we're seeing some outcome data and there's a smile there. That's all I know. It's a smile. I can't tell you this I know anything more than a smile about the outcome data. I think it's going to be ready for a preliminary presentation at the the ESMO European Medical Oncology, you know, big meeting in Paris in in September, but I'm not sure. But I'm hoping my fingers are crossed because if this shows, which I'm almost certain it will, that uh, the approach I uh, argued for in 2015 um, is uh, delivering much better outcomes for me, that'll be one of my my m- mo- most um, uh, you know s- satisfactory uh, uh, efforts. And um, I've got several friends now with CUP, and it's driving me nuts that their oncologists are still thinking about whether they get sequencing done now, as opposed to after they give them you know how many cycles of chemotherapy that ruins their immune system and makes them less likely to respond to the therapy that would have really helped, helped them if they'd have only known about it at the start of the disease. We got to change practice. We got to change the practice.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So in in your in interactions with with patients, I mean, you mentioned several friends already. Do they understand what, what you're doing at Foundation Medicine and how that's helping them? And l- like, what kind of stories do you hear from the patients?
0: Oh, gosh, so many. I mean, I went to, I told you about this uh, trip to Santa Barbara. Um, mm-hmm. Gosh, I was at my grandson's high school graduation the other day, and I'm sitting there. And the guy comes up to me and says, you're Dr. Ross? right? I said, yes. He said, you saved my life. I didn't even know who he was. Um, And he was another lung cancer patient who had a great target and completely eradicated his disease. I've got a patient who I I really, really, really like to talk about. This man is a water purification engineer in Israel. We opened, you know, for clinical and somehow an oncologist, a very well-known thoracic oncologist in Israel, decided to send us you know the block from his patient um he was a man who was at the time in his in his late 30s um with a uh, multiple brain metastases from non-small cell lung cancer a non-smoker they had done what was available at the time EGFR testing which was negative and they did the FISH test for fusion of the anaplastic lymphoma kinase the ALK gene which was also negative no break apart so they were hoping we might find something else that might help this this desperate man, who was having seizures. So we sequenced uh, his tumor and found out in our test he had an ALK fusion, EML4-ALK, you know, classic ALK fusion. Couldn't explain why the fish was negative. Obviously, subsequently, we now know that fish misses about one in four ALK fusions uh, for a variety of reasons, but they missed this poor man. And he went on anti-ALK therapy, and uh, we became friends. Um, this is 2010 when his sample came in. So it's 2022 now. He's still alive. 12 years since he and his wife have had two children since we did the fur. He was like foundation test 004, the fourth sample we ever received, and we wow. got a patient whose life he's still alive. He still he sends me papers. He writes on water purification, which is really. Important to the whole world, not just to Israel. Uh, and he's a productive scientist living with brain metastases. You know, he'll tell anybody it's not a perfect life. You know, I don't have a perfect life, but I'm still, you know, I'm still here. Uh, and it's an inspiring story. And, and we have we have quite a, num- uh, quite a number like that. Uh, you know, obviously these are these Lazarus types of stories inspire. And uh, I wish there were more of them than there are. But I think of it not in terms of curing people. For me, I, and I don't measure it in years of increased survival, I measure it in weddings, graduations, confirmations, bar mitzvahs, meaning we get patients with acute fatal diseases who have less than six months, left than three months to live, and convert them into chronic diseases while on therapy, they get to go on. I had a woman, she was lovely. Um, her doctor was in Philadelphia, a great breast cancer oncologist, uh, Massimo Cristofanelli. And he called me. He said, I have a woman in an hospice. She's got terrible inflammatory breast cancer extending from her ear down the whole side of her chest um, all through her mediastinum. She's miserable. Um, but I talked to her and she said she'd be willing to try your test. This is, oh, about nine years ago, almost 10 years ago. I said, sure, we'll do it. She was triple negative, you know, IHC and FISH negative for HER2. And we sequenced her. And sure, she did not have any evidence of HER2 copy number gain. She should have been negative by FISH and negative by IHC. But she had two different mutations in the gene, in the kinase domain and in the extracellular domain. And we decided to treat her with anti-HER2 drugs, which at that time, the only ones available were trastuzumab on the antibody side and the kinase inhibitor was called napatinib um, from GlaxoSmithKline, the first anti-HER2 kinase inhibitor. We put her on those drugs and dramatically, her skin improved, dramatically her PET CT improved and she went home and she got a year and then uh, it relapsed and the drugs didn't seem to work. And boy, I'd love to have given her transusumab, can right now, but we never got to. She died from the disease. But before she died, she uh, sent us a message and said she knows that now it's not working and it's all time short, but she wanted us to know that she'll always be grateful to us because she got to plant her garden one more time. Um, and those are things that just motivate you. They make you want to keep doing this Um well, we started, I think, one out of five, maybe, the most, one out of the six patients could have any benefit who had, who had advanced cancer from a test like foundation medicine. Today, it's way over 50%. If you include what we can do to help guide immunotherapy and all the new drugs that have come out against targets like FGFR2 and, and uh, PI3 kinase and the cell cycle inhibitors and the PARP inhibitors, the chances that the patient... As something that could get them on a different treatment, I think is well above half now, which is tremendous, and it's partly due to the success of the drug, the drug designers and the drug manufacturers. We had the targets out there, but there were no drugs for them. But now things like uh, RET fusions and uh, uh, are easily targetable. We discovered the MET exon 14 skipping mutation. That occurs in about 3 to 4% of lung cancers, tremendously sensitive to drugs that target MET, um, like uh, caposantinib and capmatinib, and uh, that's one of our great, great fun, uh, discoveries. Um, these are all you know, things that make you want to keep going. Wow, those are, I mean, you're right,
1: those are very inspiring stories. That's a great message, you know, and it's important for all of us in pathology, but we, you know, with, we, you know, we're behind the scenes, so it's sometimes A little easy to forget that there's a patient attached to that specimen. And I think these stories really
0: point out uh, how how important that is. You know, for me, I always believe that we should always, as pathologists, try to find ways to directly interact with the patients more and not be so behind the scenes. So I started in my career right after residency in the Army in 1974. And then my first practice was. of umass medical school at berkshire medical center in pittsfield and then the chair at albany met and for all those years until uh 2017 so from 74 to 2017 over 40 years i always believed that one way a pathologist could both have patient interaction maybe the patient wouldn't know it but you did as well as promote the field was i always tried to receive my sample and deliver my report for frozen sections in the operating room and never use a phone or an intercom. So I'd like to go in there and get the sample handed to me by the operating nurse or maybe the surgeon, be able to look myself at the images, you know, the scans that were always put up on the on the view boxes often during these operations and the chart and know what I was dealing with when I left the room and then come back. And I liked also to, to um Look into the wound site, see where the sample came. It gives the surgeon a feeling that the pathologist respects what they're doing to get you the sample, and um, what will happen based on what you tell them, and make the frozen section a very, very much clinical consultation, and not just uh, uh, look at the slide and say it's malignant. You know, that's just been my attitude since the day one. Okay, I like that.
1: That's that's a that's a good good lesson right there for. uh the upcoming, upcoming pathologist. So, you know, Dr. Ross, it's been really interesting to kind of go through your career, talk about the work that, you know, that, you, that you've done, the work that you're doing with Foundation Medicine. Uh, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Ross, thank you very much. My pleasure. Great big thanks to Dr. Jeffrey Ross. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. I, I mean, I know you're really pretty new to this field, but how do you think it's going to evolve in the future?
2: It is the future of cancer care. You know, I don't know what the, you know, there's some talk about some other vaccines and stuff for cancer care, but it's really made, it's really done wonders for cancer patients. And I believe that it will just keep evolving because there are so many oncogenic changes on tumors that they're identifying and they're getting drugs to. So I believe it'll continue to expand. You know, how long will they need a role like ours? I hope for a long time, but I don't know that.
1: It's definitely an exciting field to be in, you know, and especially at this time where it's. It is. Yeah.
2: It is. It's there. Like I said, it's just so many changes so quickly, and there's there's always something new, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But that being said, you know, I could go back to the lab as well in a minute because I did enjoy that work, and I still will always enjoy that. I always said when I retire, I'm going to work casual in a blood bank.
1: You can hear more from Barbara Day and her work in companion diagnostics in episode 66. Okay. I really enjoyed the historical perspective of this one. Just the whole development of HER2 testing and how Dr. Ross was involved in all of that. It must've been really exciting to be in the middle of all of that, kind of on the forefront as it was happening and to realize that You know historical things are happening and you're a part of it and also I really enjoyed hearing more about foundation medicine you know if you're one of those people like like I was you know for years I've seen specimens that were labeled you know send for foundation one testing and I always wondered what is that what does that mean well now we've we've all learned what it means and it's pretty important work that they're doing as always I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today This past week was lab week in Canada, so I hope all my friends in Canada had a great lab week. Uh, That'll be happening here in the US in a couple of weeks. Also this past week on April 14th, it was Pathologist Assistant Day, and I was asked to write a guest post for the Voicebrook blog for that day. Uh, That was a great honor to be asked to do something like that. And I really appreciate the opportunity. You can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path or connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others and together let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology Podcast.